Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo is in a melodic mood as we desire to whisk ourselves to the confines of Connecticut, where a legend of the 50s is about to find herself whirled around through love and heartbreak with the sparkle of Technicolor and widescreen to breathe new life into an old property. That's right. Tonight, we shall find that fairy tales can come true and they can happen to you kind of if you watch 1955's young at heart so see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds fairy tales can come true it can happen to you if you're young at heart my wishful dream Certain heart, I am only certain. Based on Fanny Hearst's most beloved romantic adventure, Young at Heart tells the story of a normal family just like yours. <laughs> normal, that is, if Dad plays the piccolo, Maiden Aunt Jessie plays the horses, and three beautiful daughters play the game of love with a bashful plumber a bumptious banker, and a charming but alarming correspondent school musician. Yes, it's home sweet harmony until suddenly there's a knock at the door. And there's a stranger on the threshold. Barney Sloan, character. But with a strange fascination that grips everybody's heart and puts a question mark into everybody's life. What good's a hit song? Here we go again. Hey, get your picture in life and maybe get a new suit. A lot of hullabaloo, and, and one day I'm walking down the street, and around the corner comes a bolt of lightning. Pow! D-E-D. Dead. Give the package of back to the man. Come on, we gotta go home. It's late. I cannot give him a back of the package. Don't you see the gentleman is busy? I love you, boy. I love you, and nobody else gets you, understand? And if you should survive to a hundred and five, look at all derive out of being alive and here is the best part you have a head start if you are among the very young at heart
Now that you've seen the show, we can get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1955, Young at Heart, a remake of Four Daughters, was it was but one of a string of many hits for Doris Day and the beginning of the Sinatra Assance following his Oscar win for From Here to Eternity. But how does this film hold up as a comparison to Four Daughters? And more specifically, how does it tie in to the life of Doris Day? Well, to answer that, we must have a return guest on the show. She is an author and film historian whose work of fading fame has brought a lot of insight and intrigue into the world of women figures in Hollywood history gone by. And today she's going to help us figure out just which one of these daughters is the most musically talented. Please welcome back to the show, Pam Munter. <laughs> Thank you, Zach. I'm so happy to be back. It's, it's, it's a true, it's a true question. We have to like who out of any of the seven daughters that I watched on screen between the two versions of this movie, <laughs> which one does have the actual t- chops? I, I, I think the father is is fighting for a lost cause here. <laughs> oh no, no, it wouldn't be the father. That's that's your first clue. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Welcome back, Pam. It's been a while. Oh, um, you, your your discuss our discussion on show business was quite delightful, and it was uh it was it was a different type of Ballyhoo episode because we didn't um. We, we ended up like normally we'll discuss the main star, but then we obviously ended up talking more about Joan Davis, whose uh-huh. work I've begun, begun to um, hunt down a little bit more. Um, but that's not the only story you have in Fading Fame. You have one about Doris Day as well. Um, so this is sort of a continuation of the Fading Fame saga. But I did want to ask you what you've been up to lately and how the reception for the book has been. You know, I'm so pleased that the book has done so well because, you know, I'm really not a fiction writer. I'm a nonfiction person from the get-go. That's all I read. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's all I've ever written until I I was sort of, my hand was forced in an MFA program where I had to have a second genre in order to get the degree. And so I chose fiction. I don't know what I was thinking. But I thought, you know, I can cheat a little. Yeah. And I can all the knowledge of Hollywood history, tweak it a little, you know, shave off a few edges here and there, add a few colorful aspects and call it good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no. bought, you know, so I got away with it and I'm yeah. very happy I did. Well, it's, it, it's, it's one of those elements that you struggle with as a fiction writer is trying to figure out just how you present fact. That's why they use the phrase based on a true story. Um, yeah, we've, we've seen that most recently with, uh, Spencer that just came out and I saw that and I yeah. was, you know, I, I'm yeah, I, 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 when I was watching it, my, the, the friend that I took, uh, she's much more into the princess Diana saga than I am. I, I knew her based off of what had happened to her, but mm-hmm. learning from her after the movie about what it was and seeing how much they got right in it is fantastic, but also putting you in the emotional state of somebody. So the best of psychodrama, I think, in a way. Yeah, and that's what your book does too, is it puts us in their shoes, which is yeah. something that for any good biography or breakdown of a production, it doesn't always manage to bring you into the footsteps of the person that is living it. And this comes as close as it's ever going to get because you have that ability to weave into the fiction realm. Um, and it and it works in in glorious spades as a result. Um, but I want to ask you because when you pitched Young at Heart, I had not heard of that, and I had never seen Four Daughters oh. prior. Um, uh-huh. 
my my Sinatra knowledge would have been the way I would have known about this movie. And to be oh, honest, no. my Sinatra knowledge when it comes to film is very, very limited because I've not watched a ton of his films apart from From Here to Eternity and Ocean's Eleven and The Man with the Golden Arm. Oh, and uh, um, On the Town and um, some of the stuff, uh, other stuff he did with uh, Gene Kelly. Um, uh-huh. But so it's a kind of a limited scope. Um, so I was wondering, like, what drew you to this film? Well, I was a Doris Day fan from the time I sat in my first movie theater when I was five. I mean, I my first movie was her first movie. Um, Romance, Romance on the High Seas. Yeah. Yes, the very first movie. It wasn't her best, but, you know, you have to start somewhere. But I was a kid and I was so taken. I mean, she had blonde hair and blue eyes. I had blonde hair and blue eyes. She could sing. Heck, I thought I could sing. I what did I know? I was five. <laughs> <laughs> but from then on, I was I, like a duck imprinting on its mother. You know, I was in love, and <laughs> I followed her career. I kept a scrapbook. I bought all her records. I went to all her movies. So when Young and Heart came out, I was still a kid. Mm. I went constantly. I mean, it was at our local theater, and I paid my 25 cents, believe it or not. So you're part of the contributing factor to a pretty big box office haul, especially. Oh, I'm sure it's all my fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all the same person buying the same ticket. I just don't understand. <laughs> we, yes. we, we don't understand how she's able to afford this at such a young age. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, well, that's interesting to hear because it's um, Doris Day for me was – uh, before I really dug into her, uh, any of her work period, she was more an icon to me than a, than a, um, than a performer. Um, and uh, uh. which I, I'm sure I'm not the only one that falls into this trap at my age, especially, but there is this image of Doris Day that conjures up girl next door. Um, yeah. most certainly something of the clean, squeaky clean aesthetic values, but, I will tell you that like the the one film that I, the first film that I saw her in was the man who knew too much. And it was oh. not the Doris day I was expecting yeah. when hearing about her. She should um, have been nominated for that. It wasn't. She's the best part of that movie. Oh, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of that film compared to the original. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, and a lot of it has to do with Hitchcock kind of streamlines it. And it's not, it's nothing against Hitch's work. It's just that the original has, uh, a different personality to it that I guess I'm a little bit more drawn to. Um, yeah. But Jimmy yeah, Stewart's I, great. Everybody's great. in it. it's just, <laughs> you're kind of just well, like, it's, it's here. <laughs> it's synthesized, you know, and mm-hmm. that, that was how Hollywood was in the fifties. That's yeah. what it did. Yeah. And that scene where she's um, having her freak out um, after she gives, he gives her the pills. Like it's just, it's. Oh yeah. That was wonderful. It's masterful. Um, and then on top of that, also calamity Jane was an early one that I saw of hers, which I actually, yeah, it's secret love is a great musical number uh, as filmed. Um, Mm -hmm. but so this one kind of took me aback, um, because it was sort of in line with what the image in my head of Doris Day was, but not necessarily. Um, another argument that I had for like Doris Day's versatility was that she was in sex comedies early on with Rock Hudson. And those are not necessarily squeaky clean movies like 
like any film of the era, they're going to have their innuendos strewn in and out and around. So, Well, it's daring for her and certainly mm. daring for the times. And she loved him. I mean, she, he was her favorite co-star. I can I imagine. Think. Who wouldn't want to be friends with Rock Hudson? <laughs> I know. He was funny and smart. And not all of her co-stars were her favorites. <laughs> <but> <laughs> I'm sure that I'm I'm sure that Frank falls into a strange category that you'll be able to enlighten us about. Um, You know, she was always very careful when talking about Frank Sinatra, which I found always interesting. Yeah, it's funny. The more I like, not to divert it completely from Doris, because we'll kind of talk about her history, but Sinatra for me has gone in such an interesting wave because I hear there it's basically two two camps that will throw it's it's similar to most other figures but there's extremes on either end and sinatra i I, i've never really looked at him as necessarily the greatest man in the world but uh, there are elements of sinatra's story that uh, to me i can't help but not admire him however i keep that at a certain distance um I, he was very, very good friends with Jack um, up and I mean, right up to the day of his death. And mm-hmm. that that will always count for me for something. But um, also a lot of the work that I engaged in with Sinatra and to an extent Doris Day was radio comedies because Sinatra would would be on Benny's program all the time. Um, uh-huh. And also Doris was on Bob Hope's program for two years when she was touring with Les Brown. Um, well, Doris and Frank were on your hit parade. Yes, for, yes. For a couple of years together, and that was up to Young at Heart. Their only appearances together. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear. It's interesting to be to get your introduction to a big star like that through radio, as opposed to the through the films themselves. Like Bogart is like the is an example of the one that I found through movies first, and then discovered the radio oh. stuff uh-huh. um uh-huh. same with uh claude rains and bella lugosi and all of those figures um mm-hmm. but doris's story is intriguing and i know you'll be able to fill in a lot more perspective here but i'd love to give the ballyhoo a bit of a breakdown of her if you'll indulge me let us go back to cincinnati ohio uh pam and uh <laughs> where on april 3rd 1922 uh doris mary ann kappelhoff was born <laughs> uh <laughs> the mother is a homemaker and the father is a music teacher and choir master and uh, she had apparently I did. I mean, I, I was shocked by this and I don't know the exact reasons why, but like she claimed to be born in 1924. But on her 95th birthday, the Associated Press revealed her birth certificate stating that she was born in 1922. Was she trying to shave some years off or? Well, there are various stories about that uh, in preparation. I don't want to stop your your introduction here, but as an aside. Oh, yeah, no, uh, not at all. Uh, I listened to some of her early, uh, well, not so early, her radio interviews with a local guy in Monterey a few years before she died. And she talked about that. And she claimed that her mother actually added two years to her birth date so that she could work in clubs. So she never quite got it straight. (laughs) You know, she had passports and you have to produce a certificate to get a passport you know what i'm saying so yeah didn't know at 95 mm, mm, no no it's a nice story but uh yeah it's interesting to it's interesting to know the lengths at which because her mother was ostensibly sort of a stage mother to a certain degree yes yes And, and um 
because Doris does develop an interest in dance, um, has a, a dance duo with Jerry Doherty. Um, mm-hmm. And then a car accident in 1937 shatters her right leg, which curtails that career for a bit. Um, mm-hmm. But that's when she starts singing. And she had a quote that she gave to her biographer, A.E. Hotchner. During this long, boring period, I used to while away a lot of the time listening to the radio, sometimes singing along to the likes of Goodman, Ellington, Dorsey, and Glenn Miller. But the one radio voice I listened to above all others was Ella Fitzgerald. There was a quality to her voice that fascinated me, and I'd sing along with her, trying to catch the subtle ways she shaded her voice, the casual yet clean way she sang the words. So she I've heard that too, but you know, this real story is that she and Gary... <laughs> sang before they would dance. So she was singing on stage at a very, very young age, much before the train accident. Oh, so there's a little bit of, uh, there's a revisionism going on with Exactly. It's not as dramatic, you know, than to say, I was lying in bed listening (laughs) to Elephant Gerald. It it, it just reminds me of Big Fish when the kid, when when young Albert Finney gets uh, gets some kind of disease and he's kept in bed and he just reads every book on the planet when he's held up for a year. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. before he goes back down to his hometown and starts charming everybody before he becomes <laughs> this is when he's Ian McGregor and not Albert Finney <laughs> um, but uh, yeah and this kind of uh, from what I was researching this kind of gives Alma the push to go back into managing her daughter and get getting the services of Gracie Rain um, well in the meantime her husband ran off with a member of the choir who happened to be an african-american yeah that's right uh, that, that didn't sit very well with alma so i think that spurred her on to her uber stage motherness yeah <laughs> and project and rain is somebody that she would cite as among a great influence on her there oh were, yes yes absolutely yeah she uh, she saw great potential in doris and started giving her three lessons a week for the price of one like that takes a lot of uh commit or confidence in somebody to say the least and this is during the depression i mean this wasn't an easy decision i'm sure oh yeah she had to have been definitely like set upon that um, mm-hmm. And then she, um, as she works through professional jobs at LWL, while also singing at Charlie Yee's Shanghai Inn, she auditions for Barney Rap, um, which leads to her career beginning in 39, where she adopts the stage name Day. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this is something I really want a confirmation if this is true, that uh, Rap had her change it because the lo- the last name was too large for Marquis, which holds water for most stories that I hear about the era, but also mm-hmm. that uh, he enjoyed her rendition of day after day. Yes, uh, that is true. All right. Wonderful. So yeah, this it's is, often, it's often misstated as day by day, but that was a different song. Yeah. No, day after yeah. day. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. The more you read about like people having to change their names for marquee space, or in the case of folks like Eddie Edward G. Robinson, anti-Semitism is a, is a, pre, is a well, you know, this was the time when uh, Germany was rising in world power. And I'm sure the Kappelhoff wasn't the best name to have on a marquee. Oh even yeah. If it, yeah. So that was probably another factor with Barney changing her name for her. I can imagine that has a lot to do with it because it, anti-German sentiments uh, resurfaced back up during world war two, especially. Well, and, um, I mean, and if for folks who don't realize, like the sentiment was extremely high in World War Two, like super extreme, like. Well, we had Hitler, you know. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and and like 
by World War II, we also carry the anti-Japanese sentiments too, which right. are which are just oh, uh, it's 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 rough to look at. Um, and uh, they um, would start working with band leaders like Jimmy James, Bob Crosby, Les Brown, and his band of renown. Um, mm-hmm. She scores a big hit with "Sentimental Journey" for Columbia Records. Uh, mm-hmm. And then from 45 to 46, she has a string of hits, including I've got the sun in the morning till the end of time. My dreams are getting better all the time. And the whole world is singing my song, which that last one I've heard sung by Dennis Day. And somehow uh, Doris, uh, somehow I feel like Dennis Day should have never touched that song. (laughs) I'm not sure it was her greatest hit either. I mean, she subsequently, I think, recorded songs that were better written. Yeah. uh, it, you know, it, it's the one song that I hear on the Jack Benny program, Pam, where I'm just like, I, uh, this isn't fun. This is, no. <laughs> I need something else from you, Dennis, please like yeah. sing, sing uh, Christmas in Killarney again or something. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, but she's going to talk about her marriages during these years. Right. Or is oh, that- I, I was wondering if you could touch on that because I, th- I feel like you would have a little bit more insight into that because it pertains to your story heavily too. Yes. Well, the first one was with the trombonist in one of the bands. His name was Al Jordan. Mm-hmm. She was, oh, I don't know, she was barely 17 and traveling with the band. She was the only girl, she was a girl then, in the bus. Yeah. So imagine how that was. That's got to be nuts. Like, yeah. that. So, and band, yeah. band members aren't like, not, not, not everybody's obviously like a, a Riley Rapscallion, but that's. Well, good percentage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being kind. <laughs> Very nice. Well, she was. She married him because uh, mm-hmm. that's what girls did, you know. And she got pregnant pretty quickly with Terry. Right. He was uh, a real abs- asshole. He was an alcoholic. He was uh, an abuser. He beat her regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't. He. She was a Catholic. She didn't want to abort Terry, even though it was inconvenient to have him. Mm-hmm. He wanted her to abort him. Her, him so. He beat her, hoping she would abort. Uh, Jesus. I know. Well, That's... she finally got the nerve to leave him, which, I mean, you got to give her big credit for doing that. You know, she's, what, at this time, maybe 19 by the time she walks away. Mm-hmm. But but there's a flat learning curve here. She moves on to the Reed section, and she finds George Weidler. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> much nicer man. A very demure, friendly, almost um, asexual man, from what I've seen written about him. And they stayed married for a while, but this is when her career was on the ascent and his was not. Mm. And the story is that he divorced her, left her a note saying he did not want to be Mr. Doris Day. That's so that's. See, uh, see, that's that's something that I don't uh, I would hope does not uh, happen much more these days of a man that having that little uh, that that kind of big an ego and that little. Well, like, those were the days, you know, women weren't quite people. then. Oh, you know? I know. They, oh, yeah. It's it's shadows of the men who owned them. Uh, I don't know that he was that kind of guy, basically. But, you know, that was the social the way of social life. Right? Yeah. And it's, it, it's not, to nece- it's not necessarily to throw them an unfair curveball from context. It was, it's more just like when you hear that story out loud, it does. <laughs> you just cringe a little. I yeah. Mean, oh, 
<laughs> well, of course, she was on the road, so she couldn't deal with Terry. Uh, her mother took Terry mm-hmm. back to Cincinnati and basically raised him until he was about nine. Mm. And she met Marty. Right. Now, in the meantime, um, she wasn't without male companionship. Uh, she had met Michael Cortese, mm-hmm. famous director famous uh, predator, sexual predator. There's a recent uh, biography out. I, I wish I had the title and the author's name, but it marvelously and insidiously details how awful he was to almost every actress he worked with. Oh, no, no. He signed Doris to a personal contract, and we know what that means. Oh, my God. Uh, it's helped it, her get into Warner Brothers. Yeah, no, that's... um. That's 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 something I didn't uh, realize about Curtis. I was not presence of that knowledge until literally this second. Um, yeah. That um, that changes the way I'll present these notes that I took <laughs> <laughs> because she is um, her performance of the song "Embraceable You" led to her being recommended for the film "Romance on the High Seas." It's yeah. a job that she landed after auditioning for Curtis. She was shocked to receive the role and admitted to Curtiz that she had no acting experience. Curtiz mm-hmm. praised her honesty and shot back with his desire to hire her for the role because he was needing an all-American girl. Um, and Curtiz maintained that Discovering Day was the proudest moment he had felt in his career. So that's... Okay. that's um, right. That sounds like good writing by some PR person, doesn't it? That does sound like good pro- writing by a PR person. And it's yeah. and it's funny when you... It, it It's not funny, but when you discuss the... When you discuss the uh, the nature of a lot of these directors that were able to pull off these personal contract situations, whether that's Hitchcock or Howard Hawks and whatnot, it's mm-hmm. it's all looked under a microscope. And we have had recent uh, a recent uh, resurgence of Hitchcock's um, dealings with oh. Tippi Hedren and how he was right. not the he was not even close to a gentleman with her. Um, right. And uh, I I. I never tried to like pigeonhole anybody in particular, but it, it, it doesn't help when these stories pop up and you have to, you have to recognize that a lot of these gentlemen were working under the auspices of power in an era that allowed it. Whereas now it's, it's, it's thankfully being uh, frowned upon and flat out, like told like, no, 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 you don't get a career because of that. Um, well, it can be talked about now. You couldn't talk about it then because you, you'd lose your job. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that seems like I'm not sure if Doris Day was like silent about those goings on until the remainder of her years. But to me, yes, she was. Yeah. So that's something that's interesting because I get this impression that she was somebody who didn't want to necessarily cause trouble to anybody. No, um, you're right. And You're right. she was more passive in many ways. Yeah. And that leads that that has a lot to connect to when it comes to her marriage with Marty and a, a story within the production of this film. Um, but she uh, those that film, by the way, Romance in the High Seas for the listeners, it produced two uh, a number two hit song. It's magic, um, mm. which had come off of the success of her number one hit Love Somebody with Buddy Clark. Um, mm-hmm. and then she continues in period musicals with On Moonlight Bay in 51, um, By the Light of the Silvery Moon in 53. And actually before that, I messed this up in the order, but she does T for two uh, in 1950 with Warner Brothers. So she's yeah. a Warner Brothers contract player. 
she gets her big box office smash with I'll See You in My Dreams, which uh, broke 20 year set records. She then goes into Calamity Jane, where she, where that song Secret Love wins best original song. Um, mm-hmm. Then following Young at Heart, the movie we're going to talk about today and the movie Lucky Me, she actually doesn't renew her contract with Warners. Um, Marty didn't renew her contract or with Warners. Marty, yeah. So there, here's where we get into some interesting stuff before we fully talk about Young at Heart. What is the deal with Marty? What what For the audience who doesn't know, can you explain the situation regarding her husband? Yes. Well, she was passed from Michael Curtis to Jack Warner. And Jack Warner, of course, had quite the reputation also of the casting couch yes. uh, syndrome. She signed the seven standard seven-year contract, uh, delightfully, you know, thrilled that they would want her. She was always very modest about her gifts and started to perform. Uh, but she didn't have uh, a, a solid agent. She had somebody, but she wasn't pleased with him. Marty Melcher sort of strolled in. Uh, he was married to Patty Andrews at the time of the Andrews sisters. And he signed her to a contract as her agent. Mm. Well, there wasn't much for him to do, really, because she was owned by Warner Brothers. But he managed to get producer credit on almost all of her films so he could collect the check. And very few people liked Marty Melcher. I don't know that Doris liked Marty Melcher much either. He adopted Terry. Uh, Terry later said that Marty beat him. Mm-hmm. Which is detailed in your in your story, yeah. Yes, yes, that was true. Uh, so he was not a very nice man, but he was always in her corner. At least he seemed to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, even though he was banned from some sets by Doris's <laughs> co-stars, yeah, one of them was Frank Sinatra, who didn't want him on the set. Oh, funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Um, um, uh, the other old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra, because um, the first one <laughs> yeah. was Jack Benny. Um, yeah. Frankie um, took an immediate dislike to Marty. Thought uh, yeah. Melcher was using her to get ahead in the movie business and tried to convince Day of this. And Day was not hearing it. And he despised him so much that Frank threatened to walk off this film and Wes Melcher was banned from Warner Brothers lot during the production. So JL issues an order to the studio security guards so that production would not be shut down, that Marty's no longer uh, no longer a part of this scenario, um, yeah. which is, you know, that's actually like not to deviate too much from Doris Day again, but it's it's hard because it's Frankie. Um <laughs> Uh, he, um, his career was bouncing back because he, oh, yeah. he, he hit just a, won the award. yeah, he had hit a big slump prior to from here to eternity. Um, right. and a lot of that had to do with his outside reputation. And, uh, for listeners, no, we're not going to talk about the whole notions of the gangster ties and stuff like that today. There's just too much else to go into. Sinatra will be talked about again at some point, but let's just say Frankie had a bit of a downward spiral by the late forties and his, um, actually Jack was one of those few people that was giving him like further work. Um, amidst well, his first gave out, he had the nodules yeah. uh, that required surgery and that also set him back during mm-hmm. that time. Yeah. And his, um, it's, it's actually funny to think about the position he's in, in some early Benny episodes and other radio shows of the era, um, 
I, I always refer back to a sketch where they're celebrating Don Wilson's birthday and he plays Don Wilson's uh, father. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the 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 impetus is like, uh, you know, like, uh, come on over here, baby. Come on over here, baby. And then uh, it's implied that the baby Don Wilson is able to pick up his own father and he goes, baby, put me down. <laughs> <laughs> um, because Sinatra, for those who don't really know Sinatra beyond the Rat Pack, um, Sinatra was a rather slender gentleman. Uh, very, oh, very. Yeah, he looks like he's gonna blow away. Yeah, yeah. There are jokes in Looney Tunes cartoons of him literally sucking himself into an own in, into his own straw at at a mm-hmm. uh, at a restaurant. Um, there's uh, there's plenty of jokes made at his expense for his gauntness and his. Uh, but that was also part of his Bobby Soxer appeal. Like it was it. It was like you wanted to mother him. (laughs) um, But when you the more you the more you got to know Frankie, the more you realize it's not somebody necessarily you want to be mothering. Um, But (laughs) uh, yeah. And Sinatra is also responsible for changing the outcome of this film. Um, So yes, yes. Can you imagine? I I, so here's the thing. So full disclosure to the audience. um, Uh. I don't do this that often, but I felt it was necessary for this in particular. And I'll probably start doing it more going forward, knowing how beneficial it is before young at heart came out. Um, there was a movie called four daughters from 1938 directed by Curtis, um, yeah. uh, coincidentally enough, um, which is very much this. It is this story. This script for four daughters is what the script for Young at Heart is. But Young at Heart is adapted into a musical aesthetic um, and updated for the period. Um, that film featured the Lane sisters, um, uh, Geraldine Page and Claude Rains as the father and John Garfield in the role that Frankie then assumes in Young at Heart. Oh, was Oscar nominated for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh John Garfield's a whole other story because his uh his uh he he got he he got fucking blacklisted. Sorry to pardon my language, but he, yeah, he was um that's what killed him. He what, had a hard time. What was that? Sorry, one more time. I said that it was a blacklist that killed him. Yeah, it was. Um which always frustrates me to read about considering how much he worked with Betty Davis on the Hollywood canteen in particular. And it always, it always paints a picture for me of how to explain why Hollywood doesn't uh, necessarily care to cater toward conservative values, because I end up going like, guys, they were some of the most patriotic people on this planet and you fucked them over. So that's, that's why they don't like you. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> that's that's they'll never forget that because we get reminded of it on a constant basis and you have to eat that <laughs> but the, the number one uh, republican the white male republican in that era was louis b mayer mm-hmm. i mean he pretty much contributed and sustained the republican party in hollywood mm, yeah so, you know, there was lots of power there behind the conservative uh, movement in those days yeah and this isn't necessarily to knock the the entire conservative like we're not here to knock conservatives we're not here to take like pick sides in a battle but i am here to point out like th- there is a reason behind the the thing you see and shake your head at it's like no this is the that's that's a reason it's not the only reason but it's part of it mm-hmm. um 
And uh, but four daughters in particular, it's funny. I didn't realize it spawned an entire series of films either, because yeah, there's there's a there's a spinoff of sorts called Daughter, Daughter Daughters Courageous. Um, but mm-hmm. then they make a direct sequel uh, called Four Wives and then eventually Four Mothers. Um, yeah. And the Lane sisters were Priscilla Lane, um, uh, Rosemary Lane and Lola Lane. Um, mm-hmm. With Gail Page, sorry, not Geraldine Page, Gail Page playing um, uh, playing the additional sister. And Claude Rains as the father, who is magnificent in that movie. Um, uh, and, and every we, month. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Cla- Claude Rains could be invisible. He could throw Vichy wine in the garbage. Um, yes. He could he could uh, be summoned back into a house after Cary Grant has stolen off Ingrid Bergman and <laughs> brought her to safety. That is that is truly one of the most haunting endings in a movie ever. Is Sebastian being called back into that house? <laughs> oh, it it shivers my spine. I didn't appreciate that film when I was younger, and when I started doing a Hitchcock series, the more I rewatched it, the more it just blew me away. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we won't like, I'm not going to harp too much about like the original versus the remake. I will say up up front that I prefer Curtiz's version with the caveat that I think that young at heart does the ending better. (laughs) Um, Well, I think Hollywood preferred uh, four daughters. I mean, it was nominated for all the important Oscars of the day. It was nominated for best picture. Best directing, yeah. best sound yeah. recording, um, as you said, Garfield, and best writing from Julius J. Epstein and Lenore Coffey, um, yes. which means we're bringing back some Casablanca alumni because the same script uh-huh. is used for Young at Heart, essentially. Um, yeah. So uh, th- within that, though, the other only other big legend to bring up in this is Ethel Barrymore. Um I- and I also write about her in Fading Fame, as you might recall. Yes, she, I, I, her I, scene in The Young at Heart is described in my book. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wanted you to touch a little bit more on her because the Barrymore family confounds me. <laughs> Why is uh, that? It, I think it's just because it's amazing. by confounding i mean it just fascinates me that like so many actors came out of that same family and each has a legacy that uh, seems to delve into the insane um or tragic um each of them were were quite different from the others yes that's the other thing too i think lionel's the one i know the most because of just look at how many classics he's in that like get rerun on a constant basis, but well, he was a contract to MGM that helped his career a lot. Yeah. And of course he is, you know, the villainous Mr. Potter and uh, it's right. a wonderful life. You just go running around going George Bailey. Um, <laughs> but, um, and he, he's also, uh, he's also the um, uh, Dr. Gillespie and the killed air films. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, which I've never seen any of those, but I, I I should seek those out at some point. Very charming. Uh, yeah, it's like I finally started watching some Dr. Christian movies uh based on the recommendation of my friend Adam and uh the um uh those films are just flat out like heartwarming chicken soup is what they are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's not even like a question. Um but Ethel Barrymore in particular, I'm not as actively familiar with her as her. And I would love for you to kind of touch on her a little bit for the folks. Well, the Barrymore name goes back bef- before Ethel, two generations at least in mm-hmm. the theater. Yeah. They were all stage born people. 
And even as a young girl, even though Ethel wasn't the eldest, she controlled the boys. She would get them out in the yard and they would do plays that she would write and she would direct them. And she was in charge of her life from day one. Yeah. <laughs> the boy, not so much. Um, her errant brother, John Barrymore, Jack Barrymore, the, the great profile, as he's called, <laughs> and dissolute and died at a young age from alcoholism. It's very sad, really. Yeah, one of I his mean, last films was The Invisible Woman, which is, uh, yeah. uh, he's fun in it, but you can tell he's reading from things that I, I, I never really noticed it until people started pointing me to how to notice it, but he's reading, mm-hmm. off, he's reading off of stuff. He's not memorizing anything anymore. Uh, he point. couldn't. He yeah. was, was fried by them. Yeah, he was a rascal. I mean, he, I, I don't know how he lasted as long as he did. And Ethel took care of him. Mm-hmm. She always had a soft spot in her heart for him, I think. Um, because there was alcoholism in the family, you know, neither Lionel nor Ethel were, were alcoholics, but they knew what it was like. And mm-hmm. they, they sort of felt sorry for him and propped him up financially when it was necessary. Yeah. the um, I'll tell you, the only two films that I call to mind immediately for me when it comes to her are The Parodying Case by Hitchcock, which is not... Mm-hmm. It hasn't been discussed on Shamley because the only thing that we would be talking about is the fall of David O. Selznick with Hitch at this point. Um, yeah. And I... Well, I wonderful story in itself actually yeah it is and it, it will be discussed on a shamley supplement at some point on the uh, ybr presents feed um mm-hmm. but what by the time we were doing hitchcock and wrapping everything up i was just like it's good to just be sticking to hitch at this point like side stories <laughs> like i mean hitch it's pretty clear that hitchcock was on the way out every anyway because of his deal to do things like rope and under capricorn but also, a movie that got introduced to me last year, which is Portrait of Jenny, which is an insane mm-hmm. movie. That movie, it, uh, it, I'm not the biggest, I'm not the biggest fan of Jennifer Jones, and this is, this didn't help my case, her case for me. Um, Ethel, Ethel made her mark in theater. I mean, she was yeah. a theater actress. I mean, movies were something she did to pay the bills. I, I don't know that she even enjoyed it. Yeah, I can imagine so. This is I mean, she's got a theater named after her in New York. I mean, she's a very famous, revered theatrical person. Wasn't one of her earliest works um, on the theater with William Gillette? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. It, that was for um, uh, Gillette's Secret Service, I believe. But. Yeah. It, it's not it's not my forte, but like when you dig through on the history, I, I love looking at it. And she's also friends with somebody that I've been sort of digging into more because of Hollywood Review of 1929, which is Marie Dressler, who is yes quite a figure to watch on film. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I don't yes. know how to describe Marie Dressler to an audience. I don't. You know, one of the stories I wrote uh, in Fading Fame was about Frances Marion, who was a a two-time Oscar-winning screenwriter, a lot of it for Mary Pickford. Mm -hmm. And she sort of rescued uh, her at the end, Marie at the end, because Marie had no jobs. She was sick Mm -hmm. and nobody cared. Yeah. I always uh, admire her for doing that. She didn't have to do it. Right. he did. And I think Ethel felt the same way about her. Yeah. She seemed like uh, she seems tragic when I look at her in Jack's films Um, because mm-hmm. she's with Hollywood Review and she's also in Chasing Rainbows, um, which is a movie I wish we had the full cut of, even though I don't think it would help the film at all. But 
Um, I think pretty much, pretty much everything to make or break the movie is kind of already there. Um, uh, but yeah, so by this time though, Barrymore's up in years, I was reading that she had apparently was in a wheelchair most of the time in between takes. Um, This was her last movie basically. And she did a few other small things, I think for TV before she died, but this was it. And, and I wrote in my story, I wrote about her struggles because I think it's very, important that we acknowledge that people of a certain age and she was in her 70s mm-hmm. by that time um deserve some credit for just pulling through i mean this was tough you know to do a musical film with two of the biggest stars in hollywood at the time and here she is yeah and she's she's killing it in this movie i i will say flat out that um i like her here more than I like May Robson, May Robson. I, I just, yeah. I, I think May Robson is a little bit too uptight in four daughters. Um, I really like the personality that Ethel brings in this. Well, this movie. was more Ethel, I think, than uh, anything that she had done. I mean, she was, she had a fabulous sense of humor, mm-hmm. a sort of an acerbic wit, which Jesse does in the movie. Yes. And, uh, and yet she tells it like it is. And there are, you know? there are certain lines in Young at Heart, uh, in particular, the line about like, just like you re- get ready, you don't know what you're in for. Um, when she's talking to, to, to Barney uh, talking about Barney in four daughters, it's played off as an, as like, she's not in on the joke, but she Mm -hmm. tries to save face. Like, so it's like an inconsistency and it's, you know, like you, you can make like, you know, 500 different excuses to the wind on, on certain elements. But one thing I can tell is that like one was coming from a certain era and the other one was coming from another era. And yeah. For all the stuff that Barrymore brings to this, there is also a lot of codifying in Young at Heart for the era, because this is an era where the musical is uh, becoming a lot, not only much more streamlined, but also it's it's trying to provide a lot more clean, fun entertainment. Um, well, you have, to, you have to admit, too, that I think Young at Heart integrates the music better than almost any other musical of that era. I, I would agree um, to it to a point, but it would require me to go back to some fifties musicals, which I don't revisit that often. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's not out of disfascination. It's just more like the, the musicals that I've been attracted to as of late have been in the thirties or even the forties. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just because some of them have some unique traits about them. It's not even necessarily the music or in, in a, in some cases musicals, that aren't really supposed to be musicals, but have hit numbers shoved in to create a musical aesthetic. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. because this film does a good job at tying the songs somewhat into the theme. Um, yeah. Because they're not really telling the story so much as they're relaying the theme. And uh, most musicals that we would latch on to both do the theme and the story as story progression, like the songs move along the plot. Well, look at her next two musicals, though. It was Love Me or Leave Me, which was after this in 55, mm-hmm. and then Pajama Game. Yeah. Uh, which was pretty much what was on Broadway. I yeah. Mean, they didn't do much writing. And Love Me or Leave Me, the music advanced the plot, but not really. I mean, it was uh, <laughs> and Ruth Edding's greatest hits for the most part. Wonderful. Don't it- get me wrong. Wonderful. But it's very different feel to it than 
young at heart where you could see that a lot of this music was very character driven. Yeah. And this, and actually young at heart has like this, these, this element where the music is poetic, uh, in, in certain regards and how it deals with each character and their emotions at that point, because I was lovingly surprised to find that in particular Sinatra is given down moments in this Mm -hmm. film because I wasn't, fully expecting that the poster should have gave it away for me because it is that shot of him in the car in the snow um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is astounding that that's what they were selling it on and not doris day like that that kind of shocks me um yeah but yeah. i think within that we can kind of jump into the plot and kind of break it down for people um it 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 opens up in a in a big old like a big sweeping shot inside of a house and we meet the father and the daughters it's at night and the uh, I don't know, and I couldn't find anything to confirm this, but I'm fairly sure that that's not only the same set, but they just redid the interior for Young at Heart from Four Daughters because that exterior looks impeccably similar. <laughs> it does. It looks very much like the layout of the house looks very similar. Yeah, they change a key, a couple of key things in Young at Heart. The big one is that they kind of like almost remove a wall and insert a stairway, which I found uh-huh. very interesting to kind of like look at the differences. And I mm-hmm. and like I said, I'll like I'll try to to manage this as best as I can. But Gordon Douglas for me is not as inspired a director uh, as Curtiz is, and that's kind of unfair. <laughs> but uh, his uh, his his camera work is not as interesting as Curtiz's, but he has his moments. Mm-hmm. I think he mm-hmm. really knows how to photograph Frank. Um, that's for and that's Doris. For, I think he did a really good job at Doris. Yeah, it's it's. I think the the big chunk of where he falls short for me is that there's sometimes it's just a little bit standard, or on occasion he's cutting away to things that don't really advance much. But uh, mm-hmm. it could be just a matter of taste on my end. But we we meet the daughters in this film, and uh, in four daughters, there's obviously four. Here we are left with three which are uh, Lori, Jesse, or I'm sorry, Lori, Fran, and Amy um, uh, with Aunt Jesse. And Aunt Jesse's watching a boxing match and she loses to her brother because... She loved, by the way, in real life, Ethel loved boxing. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's one of those funny little artifacts. That's that's one of those... woman. (laughs) That's one of those elements where I want like live footage with sound up close of Ethel Barrymore going like, get in there close, get in there close. (laughs) 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 Punch his fucking lights out. (laughs) Um, She loses and Doris Day goes down for food and whatnot. And we, we start to get the progression of this ends up becoming that um, uh, Fran has become engaged uh, to, um, uh, uh, to to Robert, um, played by um, he's a uh, he's a gentleman who um, he, he I don't know if you know this Pam, but he went on a three hour tour on a boat once. Um, <laughs> I heard that. Yeah, yes. I, I heard that too. Um, yes. And he dealt with a professor that had radio, coconut radios and stuff like. Yes, he's a little it, older, I think, when he did that. But yeah, yeah. This, this is Helen Hale Jr., who was uh, the skipper on Gilligan's Island, and uh, the the Hale family. Um, Hale Senior was a character actor, um, yeah. and uh, you know, like I, I love 
that Hale Sr. was in several different iterations of Robin Hood. (laughs) (laughs) He was Little John in the 22 with Douglas Fairbanks. Then he's Robin Hood. Then he's Little John in the 38 version. And then he goes, does it again for Rogues of Sherwood Forest with John Derrick as Robin Hood, uh, Robin Hood's son. So he's like, he, he, hopped his way through but alan hale jr like is is a is beloved by by a generation of tv goers and and he he did his own film work and whatnot he's in the big trees destry uh a man alone the true story of jesse james uh, well, you know i knew him from the freddie stewart movies the series that i wrote a book about called the teenagers movies yeah ex- um, explain a little bit of that for people there were there were eight movies made between 1946 and 1948. They were cranked out, you know, two or three week shoots, <laughs> a monogram, and they all starred the same five quote kids unquote. They were all in their twenties. Some like Frankie Darrow was in his forties, and they all played high school kids and then college kids. And Alan Hale, and one of my favorite versions of that it was called Sarge Goes to College, and he's Sarge, and he's injured, and the kids want to help him and. It's the, they're all musicals, and they all star Freddie Stewart, who has this wonderful uh, contra tenor, high pitched voice. Um, I've always been in love with Freddie Stewart. No, no longer with us, but yeah. Uh, Alan Hale didn't sing, didn't dance, didn't do comedy. He just sort of stayed in bed. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. But Freddie Stewart sang "Penthouse Serenade" to him, and that that got me. That made me fall in love with Alan Hale. Uh huh. And it's one of those things where you can find the the inroads that these actors took before they got their iconic oh, yeah. role. Like, yeah. like it, it's it, sometimes it's flabbergasting, like what they would do prior. Like how much like I, I love Una O'Connor, but she's not just a horror maven. She's a trained <laughs> actress who's all oh, over, yeah. all yeah. over the stage and and film in various capacities. Yeah. Um, but we get that she's uh, that Fran is engaged now to Bob. And this kicks off the series of events that will lead this family into a weird <laughs> uh, uh, love triangle, quadrangle, whatever yeah. angle. Because <laughs> uh, yes. Amy and uh, Amy and Lori are in bed, kind of pining for pining for love to a certain degree. I get the feeling yeah. that Amy is a little uncertain at first, but she gradually becomes what she's supposed to. Um, mm-hmm. in four daughters, there's a little bit more certainty that, uh, the Lori proxy, which is, uh, Anne in four daughters is very mm-hmm. insistent on just like, let's never get married. Let's just be old maids. And, uh, yeah. and th- it, it goes away pretty quickly when she meets the, uh, Alex proxy and, uh, mm-hmm. in, in four daughters here, we're seeing a lot of like the value of the, that, that older value of women wanting to get married immediately. Cause that's what you did as, as you were saying, earlier. I hate sissies. come on. Yeah. You know, that's what, that was it. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just like, it's, it's time to find a husband and their, their world kind of gets, uh, flipped upside down at the birth of some puppies, Pam, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. which this, uh, this was the cutesy factor that made me write down the note, like fifties cheese. Cause <laughs> <laughs> of course there's puppies in this movie why wouldn't there be puppies in this movie and it's not it's, it's not a knock against the movie the puppies are adorable but i was just like oh this is definitely added in for sentiment like for this is prolonged by sentiment um and uh, I, wor- I worried so much about that little number nine now i oh mean my- he was about the size of a hand i wasn't now, sure if it was real because in uh gig- moving around but it- i, I- 
yeah, in Gig Young's hands, it it looks lifeless until you see it move its head. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's nuts. Oh, Gig Young, by the way. Um, I'm not entirely familiar with him apart from the fact that he was supposed to be the Waco kid in uh, Blazing Saddles, but his uh, uh, drinking problem was uh, uh, put the kibosh on that. <laughs> you know, I have to say, having watched Young at Heart again recently for our, our presentation here, mm -hmm. there was perhaps a one or two second uh, group shot at the Tuttle's table yeah. where Gig Young looked drunk to me. Huh. It was just a, you know, one or two, I thought I, I froze it. I went, wait a minute. He kind of listed off to one side, which would not have been appropriate in that setting. <laughs> I, I wonder, I mean, he was an alcoholic. He made three, three movies with Doris. Yeah. And he is, um, his, his, the withdrawals he was having was the reason Mel had to let him go for blazing saddles. Cause he was puking green. Wow. Yeah. green bile out of him like it's very oh, he, died, he died in a murder suicide yeah it's very very sad to to uh, to talk to to learn about gig young and and i i really like i i just it it saddens me to read about it and to mm -hmm. kind of and the blazing saddle story especially like hits mm -hmm. me hard with that um but here he is pretty alive and pretty charming and yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is where the interest sparks for Lori uh, with this young man. But she but he has enchanted all of the girls. <laughs> mm -hmm. She is making he is making Fran reconsider her decisions. <laughs> uh, Amy's Long kind of, shots into their faces. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I didn't I didn't know how to fully take this in. Just like oh. the suddenly Gig Young walks in the room and then suddenly the whole house is enamored. Oh, it's one thing if Aunt Jessie and uh, and uh, uh, Gregory are enamored with him for various reasons, but like sure. he's like put a spell on all these daughters. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's it's the, it's the same feeling you get watching Four Daughters. It's like this one guy cannot be this much of a dreamboat. There's no actually, way. He was sort of a jerk. I mean, he came in and started ordering people around and telling them that he was coming to dinner and then what to eat and when to eat and where to sit. I know. You know I'm in love with somebody like that. In what world is this desirable? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And yes. It, he, it, it, it gets worse when they go on the beach because like they have a dinner, they have a family dinner and uh, Burke is a family friend or is a friend of is a uh, is the son of one of Gregory's friends. Um, Gregory, the father played by Robert Keith, um, who uh, he's no Claude Rains, but he's he's very delightful in this. He, he has his very, own. I always enjoy seeing him in films. He's he, very good. He has a good sense of humor about him. Claude Rains is definitely a little bit more. Uh, uptight about his musical preferences, whereas yeah. whereas Keith reminds me of uh, a uh, a uh, uh, not to use the denigrating term a uh, a boomer man who uh, yeah. who was a little bit more like you kids don't know what real music is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> listen yeah. to Led Zeppelin fifty times in a row like that that kind <laughs> of mentality. But he's but he doesn't like shove it necessarily in anybody's face. It's kind of just like mm -hmm. he's making his own declarative and then he walks off. But he has the same sense of humor in the script that uh, Aunt Jessie does. Yes, because th that shot with the boxing match where she loses, he he slyly receives his payment and continues playing his flute. Yes. <laughs> I love it. It's fantastic and. But yeah, they they 
we get them all like commiserating with each other. They go to the beach. Um, in Four Daughters, they go to a more pastoral picnic setting. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's it's a little bit old fashioned for Four Daughters even to like trend toward that territory. And I don't know if that's because of some kind of desire for pastoral America that exists in the 30s or oh, what? I think it was the budget. Oh, the budget. That, yeah. that, that was filmed a lot, you know, and in Young and Heart, they went to Malibu. Yeah, so which, which I love that Robert's already thinking of uh, uh, hotel real estate off of the Connecticut coastline. That's yes, <laughs> that's encouraging. We all know what kind of man he'll become up to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but that beach scene is adorable because we have Doris singing there. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously her father is nonplussed by this this woogie boogie, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> to use a Chico Marxism uh, from uh, the big store. Um, and uh, and we get this interaction with Alex and Lori where they're digging clams. And it's yeah. it, it shows off Doris's charm uh, yes. the, where she gets all the clams and he gets none of them. And, uh, of course we all love it when a man can't win a competition with a woman. And as a result, he has to go like, you know, the difference between a male clam and a female clam, right? <laughs> the, what the, the, the male clam say clam looks like this. And the other one's going yak, 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 yak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he picks her up and threatens to throw her in the ocean because she won. Yeah, exactly. It's like it, you, you could play this off as like playful banter that technically still exists in films today but when i mm -hmm. look at it from this lens i am kind of just like eh, this is just like you know that this is solved by dialogue at best and mm -hmm. even when they try to solve it with dialogue it isn't working here <laughs> but yeah well it was very 50s you know it reflected the era oh yeah the, absolutely the and it's and it's not to necessarily knock the era or not be aware of that but it's one of those things where i take a take stock of it going like i do see this in mm. film still um like even okay. if it's light shoving or something like that like a playful like shove or a love the love tap is what it's uh referred mm. to i guess um mm. what i didn't know about the 50s pam the the 50s apparently had the most square marshmallows on this planet like i'm talking like <laughs> perfectly square i had to freeze frame yeah. these marshmallows because yeah. they they have the, they have the lovely uh song around the campfire and yes. uh and with Doris singing and they're roasting marshmallows and these marshmallows for the audience at home, I'll do my best to describe it over the radio here. They are not the big Jiffy ones; They're the Jif ones. Uh, yeah. They are like perfectly condensed and squared and look like they came straight out of a military factory, like with that much precision. It is. Or the Warner Brothers prop room, one of the two. Yes, exactly. So the, the prop department made fake marshmallows that they're digging into and they're eating and enjoying. So I'm wondering how much like how how much like balsal wood did Doris Day have to swallow? <laughs> it's it's. It's insane, uh, but again, like it, we're not here to we're not here to dwell necessarily on uh, the marshmallows here. What we will dwell on is that Alex is hard at work at composing a great new production, um, but he needs help. So he is uh, he contacts his help from in the form of Barney Sloan, played by Frank Sinatra, um, and this is where we get to the complication of the love quadrangle hectagon polygon what i 
<laughs> I don't know because I don't know how Fran really fits into all of this because she usually just she just frankly just feels more more or less reserved to Bob by a certain point. Um, but uh, certainly have eyes for getting young though. Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just drooling. Yeah, she's oh, it's puppy dog eyes. Like it's oh, it's. I have, to, I have to say that Dorothy Malone, who of course played this part, mm-hmm. I wrote a very long piece about her for Classic Images probably ten years ago, and it was right after this. All these pictures she did as the good girl, you no, know, the nice girl. She did written on the wind, which threw everything <laughs> out the door. <laughs> she, I, you know, I. Dorothy Malone, I re- I rewatched The Big Sleep yesterday, which is really good mm-hmm. too. Yeah, try deciphering the plot of The Big Sleep, you can't do it. But yeah. um, but also like she she was also in Basic Instinct, which I <laughs> that took that that t- that was an interesting connected dots moment when I did. But a lot of people might know her from Peyton Place as well. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, but she, here she's got puppy dog eyes for Alex and whatnot. Yeah. But yes. and uh, but no, but nobody really cares about Barney Sloan. The world has treated him wrong, Pam. The, the which he's inclined to tell you in every piece of dialogue. This is this is uh, this isn't self-deprecation. This is pity party. The motion oh, picture. Yeah. His. You know, it surprises me that Liam O'Brien, who did the adaptation, kept a lot of that in because it's so difficult to hear. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you be sympathetic with this man who revels in his own misery and controls others around him that way? It's like, come on, it, enough. It, I'm not going to lie. Like, it doesn't read well no matter what version you have. Uh, yeah. John Gar, I will say that Sinatra's performance for me is a little bit better than um, Garfield's, but not by much. Like, it's uh-huh. it's it's a pretty close race. I feel like he's he's able to pull back better. Um, John Garfield goes bigger and Frank Sinatra here goes into an internalization to a degree. Um, Mm -hmm. he's just like, and he's also a little bit more, he, he acts more disinterested. Um, and you believe that he is not interested. Like you believe his disinterest. Um, and the introduction that is why someone as lovely as Doris Day would fall in love with this. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because I don't know either. (laughs) You know, I've been looking at some of the Doris Day sites in preparation for this, and almost down to the person, everybody says that. What's yeah. the matter with her? Yeah. And she goes with this guy instead of the gorgeous, professional, well-turned-out gig young. Is, is, you know? it, is it possible that in both iterations, but specifically this one, it's that he's, she's seeing his musical potential, and so as a result, that's swaying her as the connection to her father, and oh, I think it's, it's animal magnetism. Animal Zach. magnetism. Oh, oh, I that's right. I forgot about the Bobby Soxers. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, Frank. It's. I will tell you though, I'm not ruling out Jesse as a possible love interest for Barney either, given their interaction. <laughs> I think Jesse would have done it with anybody. She was she was game. Oh yeah, yeah. She didn't care. Like Jesse was gonna do whatever she wanted to do because she's mm-hmm. her own woman. She'll bet on boxing and she'll have sex with whoever she damn well pleases. Um, <laughs> but their their banter back and forth reads so wonderful today. Like that that th- between Ethel and Barney. That, that yes, I love that scene. I write about that scene in, in the short story that I wrote about Ethel. Yeah, and it and I. I loved getting to see the actual, like the the source material from that when watching this movie because it is just, 
oh my god it is just like it's like um i always like a good verbal boxing match yeah, it's a ping pong match between two equals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't know they were equals yet. Yeah, exactly. And you get—that's when you also start getting Doris like lighting a cigarette for Barney and yeah. putting up with Barney's yeah. pity party. And and incidentally, by this time, Doris Day was a Christian Scientist, and she did not smoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's that was something I found interesting when watching the film because I'm just like, mm, they're not allowed to do that. But uh, <laughs> oh, oh well, See, Kenny Baker was one too, and they seemed to all turn out just fine. But <laughs> um, it killed Marty Melcher, but we won't go there. Yes, yes, we, we won't talk about that right now. Um, what we will talk about though is that you know, so Barney kind of starts ingratiating himself himself into Doris's life. And well, Lori actually saves his job that he's gotten at this local bar. Um, mm-hmm. Like, that's by this, scene, Alec. what was that? That's a nice scene where oh, she comes to defense. Yeah, I agree. It's lovely. And I think Frank plays off of it really well, too, because he, mm-hmm. he, he first he's gobsmacked and then he just kind of plays into the role of it and whatnot. And it's it's nice watching the 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 manager of the of the place just stumbling over himself. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a lovely thing. And so, and we start to see the friendship blossom. Um, a big, a big indicator of this is that she, when she makes a gingerbread cookie, it it's, it's not going to have a frowny face, Pam. It's going to have a smiley face. Cause he's, he's starting to, he's starting to warm, he's starting to warm up. So, um, and th- this, this scene's in the original too, in four daughters. Um, the difference is though is is that those um uh, I, I, this might be the food episode because I'm obsessing over the marshmallows, but the ginger <laughs> the gingerbread cookies in in this movie look like gingerbread cookie gingerbread men cookies. The ones in Four Daughters look like they were carved out of wood, like they were carved out of a tree. <laughs> oh. and I don't know if it's just because it's in black and white and I'm trying to decipher it, but it literally looked like there were indents of wood in there and not natural. You're looking at the wrong things that, you know, you should be looking at the actors, not the food. I I understand that, but I was hungry at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And and it's, and it's Christmas season. Um, (laughs) But they have the, they have the interaction in the kitchen where he kisses her. And I, and I, I do like the line that I think it's a little bit more, like believable out of Frank's mouth where he's just like, I wanted to let you know that wasn't a spur of the moment thing. I was planning that all week. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of like, it gives us better reasons to sympathize with Barney. Like there's vulnerability that he's slowly starting to expose. Yes. Um, he's taking a risk, a personal risk. Yeah. And we also see that Amy is um, still pining for Alex as well. Her feelings for Alex are growing too. Um, but Alex is enamored with Lori and we have the scene where they're walking, uh, presents back home and she's, uh, uh, stopping at every window shop and not really paying attention to what Alex is trying to tell her. Um, mm-hmm. which for all the, for all the, for, for all the outdated sexism that Alex engages in, he's technically a little bit more, uh, engaged in Lori's life than Barney seems to be, uh, at certain points. Like he listens a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Barney's out for Barney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that's when we get the proposal scene, um, where he says it, that, 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 that counted as a proposal and he hands, <laughs> I like this move. 
not because I think it's a move that would work, Pam, but because I like the comedy of it. <laughs> um, it's uh, he hands the packages that are in his arms to a uh, to an Italian man who's with his family. <laughs> A stranger just just happened to be there. Just a just a flat out stranger in yeah. four in four daughters. It's a little bit more clean this scene because Curtiz is directing it as a single through line as opposed to a series of cuts over locations. So it's not it's not drawn out here though. Uh, the, Douglas succeeds at the comedy because we get this thing where the the man who's holding the packages is just like, who am I to who am I to interrupt? Like. <laughs> <laughs> you don't you don't understand my darling like i can't i i can't do that to the man you understand yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and uh it, it it it's one of those like it was it's one of those elements of dialect humor being done where i'm just like i don't know necessarily why you needed it to be italian but i'm kind of glad it was italian <laughs> like Mm-hmm. I that wouldn't have mattered. The the only the only change I would have made is like make him from Brooklyn. Maybe that would be the good common oh, divide. Yeah. <laughs> but it uh, had to be specifically different from the pair that was the focal point, and that was the idea. I think. Yeah, exactly. Like they they they've reached the bitter end. <laughs> Their marriage. Yeah. <laughs> She's at the point of nagging. <laughs> like it's mm. it's if, and uh, this is where we start the the crux of this entire plot really kicks off and like why this is a love story between Barney and Lori really kicks off at a, at a, at a birthday party for the father. They get him a really nice stereo set. Like I'm mm. talking like very nice setup. It's all yeah. decked out in the original version. This scene, like, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it seems much more formal and whatnot here. It's kind of a kicked back fifties party. It's, you know, like people yeah. gather family is all very warm with each other. It's a pleasure to watch them interact, really. Yeah, it is. And I and I know that some people might see that as a detriment to the quality of the film, like, going like, ah, it's too corny, it's too schmaltzy and sentimental. But there is something about many of these films from the from that era that do nail the the family unit very well to the point where I think a lot of that emotion and sentimentality finds itself in some of the better movies you see today that can have that wide appeal like yeah. that like i mean disney uses that kind of uh uh formula for itself not just in its 60s movies but especially today like they've perfected it to a science um mm-hmm. it's uh, uh it's astounding the way you look at it from that p- comparison but we see that Lori has actually gotten barney a set of cufflinks too which you know, like at that point, you're just going to be like, Barney, like, stop thinking of yourself and just 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 be a better man, please, because <laughs> Lori is giving you way too much attention than you deserve. <laughs> you know, that particular move was inauthentic to me because in the times, a woman didn't give a man an expensive gift unless there was a hidden agenda here. And I think at that point, she didn't have a hidden agenda yet. Yeah. You know, she- involved with young it's good to hear that perspective on it for me like i took it from a from the context that i understand it under a present prism where it's just like she's trying to help him realize there there's a happiness to life so i didn't mm-hmm. even think about that element of it but that's that's a very good point to bring up mm-hmm. um and uh but barney's heart is about to get crushed right after that because alex 
uh, basically proposes to, uh, to, to, uh, Lori and she says yes. And you see the sullen sinking look on, on everybody's face, <laughs> on everybody's face, but they focus on Fran very interestingly and uh, Amy too. Um, Gregor, <laughs> every iteration of the father, both iterations are always just like, what's gotten into my family? Like it's, a, it's almost as if though, there's some kind of curse blowing in the wind that's invaded my house. Like, because like when they go to have that first dinner and they, and he sees that they're all like suddenly doing chores around the house. He's just like, something's wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My mind, my mind switched. Robert Keith's face to Donald Pleasant's face in Halloween going like something's not right here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Michael's still on the loose. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just, it's, and I think both versions of the father play into that very well of just going like, I don't understand why suddenly everybody's deciding to be responsible, but <laughs> here we are. Um, and then that's when Fran, I didn't know how to read this. Fran suddenly goes to Bob and goes like, would you like to still be a, would you still like to have a June wedding or do you still want me to be a June bride? And well, I think she was holding out hope that gig young would forsake Laurie and go to her. Yeah. But then now she's just basically, you know, just a few minutes beforehand. Yeah. So she's basically made her decision then at this point. I was like, okay, I can't have him. I'll have my second choice. At least I'll be married. (laughs) Well, good enough. They have that conversation at the beginning too, where, um, the, about uh, Robert uh, about Robert's weight. <laughs> yes, and, yes. Which I I I don't want to read too much into this, but I was but I kept like feeling I was starting to cry for Alan Hale Jr. Like he's not that fat, guys. <laughs> he's 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 jolly plump, and and it doesn't matter what he looks like. And exactly, he's, there had to be some flaw that stopped Fran from leaping immediately into his arms. Yeah, that that doesn't seem like a a gender situation. This seems like a script making a fat joke. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, ah, oh, this doesn't hold very well. Like the only time I put up with it is Don Wilson in the Benny program, and I'm just like, that he's in on yeah. the gag, and I can't yeah. I can't knock it if he's into it. Um, well, everybody put fat next to Sinatra. I mean, oh yeah, well yeah. Uh, we get this uh, the scene involving Amy breaking down in the kitchen and Ethel mm-hmm. trying to like give her a reality check, <laughs> yeah. um, which was, which is it's again, it's one of those reasons why Barrymore is so darn wonderful in this movie is that like, she's not, she's not going to put up with this really. Like yeah. she'll, she'll, she'll have sympathy up to a point, but mm-hmm. she's not here to, like she's not here to fill you with false notion. And I do admire that when the, when it's done right. And I think here it's done very well. Yes. It's very subtle in her characterization. Yeah. It's, she's not trying to make a scene. She's playing into it. And I don't know if that comes with her sensing the difference in acting styles of the time, or if this is how she's always been, because I'd have to go back to the other films of hers that I've seen to see how well, you know, bear in mind, she has 70 years of acting experience here that she's bringing to this very simple scene. Yeah. And it's a so, scene that she's had to play in probably different variations multiple times in her career. So she's probably found right. ways to adjust it over time. Right. And, and which to me, that's, that's always wonderful to look at an actor on the way out to watch what they put in after mm-hmm. all those years, like George Burns putting a lot of his, uh, uh, 
a lot of what he learned from not necessarily film, but from comedy into the sunshine Mm -hmm. boys is especially interesting to watch. Yes. And also reflecting on his age at that point. And Barrymore is basically doing the same here in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we get Doris, uh, Lori's coming in and she sees Amy and she doesn't fully know the reason why Amy's crying. Um, And, uh, Meanwhile, uh, we haven't really talked about him, but Ernie, who Amy has sort of affection for or is kind of relegating herself to him, uh, she definitely does by the end. But Ernie, played by Lonnie Chapman, who is just the goofiest of goofballs. (laughs) He's a great character actor. He is. He is. I like him. I like him a lot. I need to watch more television shows of the era just so I can get more of him because he's on The Rifleman and he's on Dundee and the Kelhane, Mission Impossible. He's. He, I, I know he's been on NYPD Blue and Matlock. Um, he's just the perfect blue collar plumber. Yeah. <laughs> I love that there's that moment where she he goes to wash his hands and she says, uh, uh, Ernie, take off your suit. And he's like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Thank you, thanks for reminding me. I wouldn't have thought to do that. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. right. I've got to keep this clean for reasons. <laughs> and actually, Ernie gets an incredible turn in this movie, like an incredible turn by by the time a certain scene comes up. But we get um, we get Sinatra doing Set Him Up Joe. Um, or, or is that later? I'm trying to remember in the timeline here. It's it's at this one right here where he's lamenting and is about to leave for New York. Um, mm-hmm. And we get him lamenting. We get Barney lamenting in the bar going back to New York on the day of the wedding. And day yeah. uh, and, Lo- and Lori comes in and Barney admits his feelings for her and also admits that uh, or or clues Lori into the fact that Amy was in love with Alex too, and uh-huh. this is where the film becomes interesting for me because of the choices Lori makes or Anne makes, depending on which version you're watching in the movie. Where they, and I wish we had seen that scene. It's like a missing scene or two that causes Lori to change her mind and marry him. Well, the scene the the scene that. Uh, changes her mind in terms of like doing it for Amy involves her seeing the way she's preparing um, Alex for the wedding. And then Alex leaves the room and she starts getting emotional. And in the original version, uh, it's a similar scene, but the framing's tighter on Anne uh, or Priscilla Lane. Whereas the Mm -hmm. framing on Lori here in this scene is a little bit more wide. It's a little bit more, uh, it's capitalizing on the widescreen um, of the time. Like it's, it's showing you everything. And this is slap dab in the middle of the period where we are trying to beat television. We're trying to get people out of their homes and back into the theater. That's right. That's right. And a musical like this is a way to get people out of there. Um, and we get the telegram that basically says, I've gone off to marry Barney um, break the news to Alex gently. He'll understand um, or I hope he'll understand. And they all kind of panic on like, who's going to tell everybody. And then Ernie raises his hand and says, I'll do it. And he goes out there like a fucking badass. Like, I know. Of, who of, knew of, that he had it in him? Of Karen understanding. I knew because the goofiest character always has this moment in any <laughs> movie. <laughs> they always yeah. get this moment and it's wonderful. Um, yeah. 
but yes, and then we get the um uh the domestic life of Laurie and Barney Sloan, um, which oh, un- unlike the domestic life of George Burns and Gracie Allen, this is less than ideal. Um yeah. Uh, yeah. but uh she, she's she's burning stew in uh, in the kitchen. Um the, the I love the feel here of this set. Because yeah, one room. I mean, you could just see the poverty. You almost smell the poverty. You can't in Four Daughters. In the Four Daughters one, it looks too nice for its own good. It's small, but it doesn't look like disheveled. And uh-huh. I, and I was I was thrown off by that because I'm like, this is Michael Curtiz. This is a man yeah. who delves in the shadows with his imagery, and we mm. are getting the flattest looking room that clearly came from one of the gangster sets I've ever seen. Um, wow. it's, and I think that's not Curtiz's fault. I think that's Warner Brothers. Uh, uh, well, he had a voice in that, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. And but regardless, like. Douglas, for all I'd knock on him in terms of his direction, he he gets something interesting out of this scene in particular because a scene that you don't see in Young at Heart, um, and it is only talked about in dialogue, and this is where we see them condensed, is that uh in Four Daughters, uh the the Mickey character, instead of Barney's Mickey, he mm-hmm. uh uh, is at a bar with Anne talking to the fellow musicians about the South America trip here. Mm-hmm. Barney has already had the discussion and turned it down. Yeah. yeah. And I think that they did an active job to tone down Barney's desperation for money because of the ending we get, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. in four daughters, he actively jokes about borrowing money from the Robert, the Robert character that's in four daughters. Um, Uh So he's, he's a little bit more of a desperate character in this one. Barney here is a little bit more ashamed of himself. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that plays to Sinatra's advantage to earn the ending we get. Um, Mm. That's the one thing I will say, like four daughters is ending. I don't feel it's completely earned. I think it kind of falls apart. Um, because well, I'm not happy with the ending of Young and Horror. I think that <clears throat> I know you're going to get to it, but the yeah. personality transformation is is unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a it's a miracle transformation. Yeah. I, I would the reason why I prefer it is that there's a convenience in Four Daughters that I find unbelievable. The only reason I can tolerate it and ultimately give it a higher star rating is because uh, the uh the film is of an era where it had to kind of like give you that quick happy ending in order to justify its sad ending that seems to throw everything off um mm-hmm. but uh this is where they 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 end up going to uh s- spending christmas at the the Tuttle home um and alex has it, ha- alex has become a success something that barney really loathes um and does not want to be reminded of um and uh he's in the house he had, he had been visiting them and he was about to leave for the train um and we get Lori revealing that to alex that she's pregnant as she's trying to patch up the remainder of the frustration that he she must have put alex through um and the idea of her not telling barney right away I think the only reason that happens is because of the ending we're going to get. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I am curious 
how it feels to watch this ending unfold for you as we go through it. Because I do think that before we talk about it, talking about Barney Sloan as a character that the way it's written, it's not meant to explicitly use Laurie, but he she's being used in certain yes. respects. And I want what was that? Willingly. Yeah, willingly. And I do want to know because I I'm I think everybody listening has already gathered this. This shares strong strong shades of her marriage to Marty. And I'd love to know your thoughts on that and how you perceive it as the author of the piece that you wrote and as a viewer of the film. Well, Doris, of course, was the breadwinner in the Marty marriage. Mm. Uh, Marty just sucked off her. That was the only income he ever had was from her. I don't see that in Young at Heart. I don't know where they got their money. <laughs> That's a really good question. How he, do they? I, I think he's getting work where he can, but it's more the emotional. Um, she's providing emotional currency. I think in the Marty marriage, Doris retreated. Um, she saw Marty as a boss, mm-hmm. as someone who directed her career. I think as the years went on, there was less and less emotional closeness she felt for him. She had a number of other relationships, as he did. Yeah. Uh, and at the time of his death, they were still married, but they'd been separated for over a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was dying of cancer, she moved back in with him to take care of him. I mean, that's a Barney Sloan move. I ever saw one. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of those elements that points back to your story, like I, I don't want to like I'm not going to quote from the book because I, or I, I because I would want people to read the book and actually mm-hmm. pick this up because they should be doing that. But there is something in that story that happens where she makes a decision, and one that I find interesting in the grand scheme of how Doris Day turned out is that she she decides to be more of a mother, um, or at least like that that becomes her more focal goal, and Lori's kind of mothering Barney. It's not really a yeah. relationship. It's a um, it's it's a code, it's, it's a code, more, it's a codependency kind of thing. Or a, it is, a, and she's much more intact than he is. Yeah, and the and, and her, her enabling him is very very um, heartbreaking to watch. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, like all of those sites that you're looking into are are correct when they're asking that question because I still don't understand it. This is a movie that I would love to rewatch and revisit. I bought the Blu-ray blind for this dis- uh-huh. for this discussion and I'm glad I did. It looks beautiful. It's got uh-huh. a great Frank Sinatra performance. It's Ethel Barrymore's fantastic and it Doris Day is terrific. It's not my favorite thing that I've bought within the last couple of years, but it is one of those things where I'm like I'm glad I have this to kind of like act as a time capsule to a degree because we talk about on this show how things have evolved and changed and I feel like this story if it were done today would give Lori a much better self-awareness um and a little bit more control over her situation and less uh sympathy um if anything well, she... the ending would be different also yeah absolutely I think it, it's we're going to be experiencing that too with when night it's not the same category but when nightmare alley's remake comes out we're going to be getting a very different ending to nightmare alley than what we got in 47 with tyrone power and Mm i i think that when you look at a musical doing something of this nature like a star is born is actually a good um 
draw a comparison to to a certain respect of a of a woman being fine but the man slowly crumbling but the difference is that this isn't really about show business per se you know those two movies are being filmed at the same time on the warner brothers lot at this uh that so there's a trend going on at warner brothers at the time yeah, yeah. and warner brothers put all the money behind the star is born for oscars yeah and didn't they do uh young at heart even though this movie didn't do terribly at the box office by any stretch it was it was it was successful on its own merit i f- was finding that it it pulled in a good fifty four thousand in its first run um uh off of the half uh, million i think was the the final gross it was, it's still in the top 20 that yeah year. oh yeah yeah it's uh, it's certainly nothing to sneeze at but yeah a star is born was a powerhouse and a lot of uh, most people already know that that's the that's the film that Judy Garland, that was going to be her Oscar. And then a certain princess showed up and uh, <laughs> I love Grace Kelly, but I I kind of wish Judy had gotten it. It's just, yeah, no comparison. Yeah. It's, it's a different, it's a different, um, it, you're judging on two different merits. And I think that Judy had kind of like earned her stripes. If the Academy Awards is designed to honor people's careers at this point, it should have been going to to Judy Carland. Um, but yes, the ending comes about where Barney takes Alex to the, to the train station. They stop at the drugstore and Barney and Alex kind of have this conversation that just leaves Barney feeling like a piece of shit. Um, which rightfully so. And this is a scene that Douglas basically shot for shot remakes from four daughters. Mm -hmm. Um, the shot of Barney driving through the snow, the windshield wiper is our indicator. Uh, and at a certain point he shuts off the windshield wiper, the windshield wiper stops and the snow covers the window. Mm -hmm. Um, but the difference is, is that, the ending in four daughters sees the uh, John Garfield character dying. Yes. Um, and part of that comes from it. First, it comes off of the fact that they all get a call from the hospital and they actually think it's Bob. Mm-hmm. And this is the moment for Fran to kind of like confess her sins, quote unquote, and how she was, enamored by Alex and what that is a better wife. I screwed up. Yeah. Exactly. And Amy's already had her own reconciliation because she's married Ernie because Ernie was there for her when Amy was feeling heartbroken. And that's, that's how that was resolved. Nice and neat. Um, Mm -hmm. But Fran is feeling heartbroken and we have the father go in to the hospital room and then he comes out and says, it's not Bob, it's Barney. And then Mm -hmm. we see Doris walking in there and, uh, Barney looks like he's been been tussled around hard, um, but not so much that you don't see Frank Sinatra's wonderful face looking slightly, oh, of course not. Sli- <laughs> slightly, <laughs> contract. slightly, slightly black eyed. Uh, yeah. I think I, th- I think Garfield's allowed to be a little bit more disheveled by the end. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> yeah, and we have the lighting of the cigarette. Yes, of course. Which that that's. Uh, I like that visual cue of the lighter. Like at this time, the lighter works, but before mm-hmm. it wouldn't work and she needed to match the spark it. So yeah. it's, it's, it's not so subtle imagery of the flame being there, the flame of passion being there, but, mm-hmm. um, and, but that's when it looks like all is lost. It looks like he's about to die and she just reveals you're going to be a father. And that's when, that's how we know, Pam, if you ever want to save somebody in the hospital, you just have to tell them they're having a kid. <laughs> and then they're, their eyes yeah their eyes open 
and everything yeah. suddenly becomes clear. <laughs> Life is transformed. Yeah, which is uh, idealistic at best. <laughs> um, so I, I would love to know why the ending rubs you the wrong way. <laughs> oh, so many reasons. Uh, for one, I don't think an actor should ever have that kind of power over his script. <laughs> You know, Sinatra said, I don't want to die. I died in from here to eternity. I died in suddenly. I don't want to die in young and hard. And if you're going to make me die, I'm not going to do the picture. It's that simple. So they said, okay, Frank, we won't have you die. That's something that I am surprised still permeates films today. Um, People being worried about their image over who's a bad guy and who's a good guy or who dies and doesn't die. I think yeah. I think that's been mainly relegated to action stars today. Um, uh-huh. Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Willis—they all have this element about them, about this like this sense of image that if they that if they tweak it for any reason, they feel like their their cachet will be gone, and it mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. rubs me the wrong way to see that that's where it went. But at the same time, I'm glad it drew itself away from drama where the people who are engaged in those movies are willing to take chances or to go down the darker road. It's mm-hmm. not I don't feel like Sinatra necessarily didn't want to go down a dark road. This is a guy who was made the house I live down in. Down the dark road. <laughs> he done it. Been there, done that. Yeah, that's he's in a he's in a different spot in his life. He just wants to have fun with his buddies in Vegas. Like this is not this is exactly. not the Frankie before that made the house I live in. And it's not even the yeah. one that would make the gold man with the golden arm. And no, I, he dumped Neva and he was out on the prowl. He wanted to get back to business. Yeah. And I, I so I do like I agree with you. I don't think an actor should necessarily have that much power. The the only time I the only time I have questions about it is if it regards a uh a figure that is known creatively to intermingle with their material in a way that's already been established. And Sinatra wasn't necessarily doing no, that per se. No, he wasn't. Yeah. The other thing that bothered me is they they had their child and they called the child, wait for it, <laughs> lightning. Um, yeah, because, yeah. The yeah. says, you know, nothing's going to get me. The only thing that's going to bring me down is lightning. You know, one of those sad things. Now, come on. You, you know, Do you want a kid I, lightning? Do you want your kid to bring you down? Do you want a reminder of having tried to kill yourself? It's, I don't get that at all. Pam, it, it it's, reminds me of film school. It reminds me of film school when they would sell, show us the Godfather clips and be like, now see, an orange means somebody's going to die. Um, or or, or some, something, something, something like that. And I'm like, hmm. this is... This is unsubtle imagery at its finest that permeates this movie there are several props or terms that are used to indicate story and theme that are just so uh, they're cute but that's Mm -hmm. it like the lightning thing is cute until you dig into it the way we both dug into it Uh, and there is a sense of like an affirmation of, of like having conquered that, but at the same time, it does also come off as strange and the bracelet that seems so self-absorbed, you know, what she already has been throughout this film. (laughs) Find him and this self, never mind the kid who has to live with this name his whole frigging life. (laughs) It, 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 but the other one is also the bracelet that uh, Alex gives for, um, um, Uh, uh, from me and number nine, which is cute. Uh, yes. And then it's used as the indicator for the relationship ending. Um, yeah. And 
Well, it's a nice touch, actually. It it is. Like, and again, like I said, some of them some of them do work. Um, uh-huh. And like, I don't. Like, I think the imagery of the dog is nice. Um, like the dog not having pups of its own. Like, that. you see the dog getting older as as a time lapse mechanism. That's kind of nice too. Yeah, it is. But there is stuff like the lightning thing and some of this other, some of these other tropes that just are a little bit like hurried or convenient and the the ending for me the reason why i prefer it over four daughters is that the ending in four daughters because the barney equivalent dies garfield dies you have uh the priscilla lane character kind of uh somewhat back to normalcy and then mm-hmm. the Alex equivalent comes back into the picture outside of the house. Their 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 meet cute uh, moment is uh, because he's swinging on a gate, and then uh, she shows she shows him early on how to swing on a gate. And then here, he swings on a gate. Be happy and single. You can't be a woman and be happy and single. Nope, you can't. You you can't. Not in Hollywood, Pam. No, I'm sorry. It won't, won't be allowed. Not even. Oh my. my yeah. My, my. It's 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 a it's a trope that has thankfully gone away, but it's still permeated rom-coms up until a certain point in the, in the two, mid 2000s where that doesn't love happy endings what can you say oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a knock against happy endings at all like i love a good cup of chicken soup but i i think that the the drama that this film is intending to carry gets undercut the moment you allow Lori or Anne to have a happy ending. And I I don't know what that says about me and my preference in storytelling where I want to see people suffer because I don't, but it is like one of those things where I'm just like, no, for good drama, you know, you kind of need to, it's almost like you'd want to write it in a way where the father ends up playing a part in giving some sense of advice uh, on how to handle it. He lost his agency at the end and that was disappointing. Yeah. I, I feel like the the father figure in both of those stories, which is so strange because both films are very proud to indicate who the father is. They all show his degree as an yes. opening shot. That's right. Um, yeah. and, and yet, by the time we get to the end, his importance is next to nothing. It means that I've got to check out four wives and four mothers because... Mm-hmm. I need to see if the father has anything more to do or if Claude Rains was literally just given an assignment in the pre-Casablanca realm, which is not unheard of by any stretch. Like he, mm-hmm. he did assignments dutifully even while still yeah. having nominations across the board. You didn't have a choice back then, you know, no. you under contract, you did what they told you to do. Yeah. Unless you were Olivia de Havilland and said, no, I have no desire to do, well, uh, to do see. George Washington slept here. Give me something more challenging. And then that's when she, she won that battle. But I, boy. I agree. I found that out recently. I, I guess this has been well known and I just never looked into it is that, she turned down Anne Sheridan's part in George Washington Slept Here. It was one of the many roles she was declining that led to that Warner that battle with Jack Warner. Um, which for for full details on that, you can listen to episode twenty five of this show because um, <laughs> we did a wonderful chat about um, uh, 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 to each his own, which is a lovely film. Um, and Betty Davis was the forerunner of that. She lost her battle. Yeah, she that. took that all the way to the UK, if I recall correctly. Yeah. 
And uh, but yeah, we get the end a Warner Brothers picture. The print on this film, by the way, it's it's being put out by Olive Films on Blu-ray. And the only thing that's not really restored are the credit sequences because they looks like they didn't really have the uh, the source print for that for that to fix that stuff because like you'll know when the film goes into clean mode when the scratches stop and then it goes back in at the very end. One of the most interesting things about this is that there are no credits for the music. Ah. Uh, each of the tunes was written by somebody else. I mean, it wasn't like an all Gershwin score like they used to have. Each of them, the songs was written by a different person. Yeah. None of them got credit. Yeah, none of them got credit. Neither did conductor Ray Heindorf, uh, who sure. was not given credit for the film as he was disagreeing with a recent policy that had been enacted at Warner Brothers where he would have been credited as music supervisor and conducted by, um, which, you know, I we see fights with credits all the time today in Hollywood. So uh, the, less common then though. Yeah. There in particular too, is a situation where like music always kind of gets a weird credit situation throughout history and doesn't get really streamlined until later on. But like, I, I didn't even realize that there was a policy that was being enacted at that point to change the way those things are written out and the policies are straightened out. Cause, I'm surprised ASCAP and BMI didn't scream. Uh, I, yeah, that, that actually bothers me too. And especially with, with, with us dealing with how royalties are handled and how work conditions are treated now in Hollywood like that. <laughs> That, that question becomes extremely pertinent. I'd, I'd want to do more digging and see if there was an objection raised because I didn't look up Ray Heindorf and further into him in like any back trade papers. What I did find, though, in terms of the promotion for this film from Variety, uh, there's an ad for a contest uh, TV promotion. And it says here, beginning December 13th through December 24th, the big payoff over the CBS television network coast to coast for two consecutive weeks at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard is conducting a letter writing contest for its millions of viewers entitled I Stay Young at Heart by dot 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 <laughs> insert your like I love palm olive soap because in 25 words or less and mail it in with a with your address. Uh the contest ties in directly with the Christmas New Year release of Young at Heart, which important credit mentions each day. The winner yeah. of the contest and husband or wife will receive a Bermuda trip as the first prize. The winner will also be brought to New York to appear on the big payoff with a chance to win a mink coat. In addition Always to the model by Bess Meyerson. Do you remember her? Bess <laughs> on that show. Really? <laughs> yeah, the model. Yeah, I've got Bess Meyerson and Randy Merriman. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and that. So like, it's cool to kind of find these little interpromotional <laughs> contests that. How fun! It's almost like they're trying to behave with television, but. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. that's why I brought it up because it was interesting to me because the impression you always get is that film was at constant war with television. And in fact, a lot of them cohabitated Warner brothers television, like JL jr. Had to squeeze his father to, oh, yeah. to get yeah. a television department at Warner brothers. Jack didn't well, want to do it. That didn't happen until the late fifties. Well, they were sort of in bed with each other more of the time, but it, we're talking about 1954. Yes. Yeah. That's why I find it interesting that they would even bother to do a promotion. I guess it was just like anything we can do to get the word out to come to the theater. And yeah. I mean, like, I, I think it's kind of a misnomer that 
mediums always clash with each other until there's a resolution. A lot of, a lot of times there is some form of compromise in the early stages. Radio Mm -hmm. in particular, film studios were scared of radio as were newspapers. And, uh, in particular, like MGM was very picky about what stars could appear on radio. Um, whereas Warner brothers was a little bit more in tune to radio, um, probably because of Sam Warner finding interest in it. And mm-hmm. uh, as a result, they were at the forefront of inter- intermediary cooperation. But there's also the element of them not wanting to be undercut by television. So it's weird how they like they took to one medium, but not to another. And I think a big part of it is obviously that television is a visual medium as is film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the film was uh, a pretty decent box office success at two point five million at the box office. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't read a review from one Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, my uh, arch, that's yes, my arch nemesis, as it were. Um, <laughs> it just, I just don't understand him, Pam. I just, I want to give him a hug and tell him everything will be okay if you just stop being such a mean person. Uh, it, is, it says those who remember Four Daughters as a most beguiling pre World War II romance and the performance of the late John Garfield in it as one of the best he ever gave may be a little surprised to discover that Warner Brothers' new Young at Heart is a remake of that old favorite. There may be a surprise to discover in this color film, which opened at the Paramount yesterday, that the old sentiments are rather nicely warmed up and that Mr. Sinatra acquits himself well. Furthermore, they got Doris Day as the daughter, who was formerly played by Priscilla Lane, and tossed in a lot of song numbers for her and Mr. Sinatra's sing. But there is no mistaking the origin. So he's already like pointing out to the fact that this is uh, th- this is a remake, and um, uh, the uh, the he I, I love how he kind of points to the songs. He he has opinions on the songs. He's like, best of the several song numbers for our taste is "There's a Rising Moon." Next is. Mr. Sinatra's mooning, just one of those things. The ti- the title song is <laughs> just a it, yeah. <laughs> it was a standard. I mean, I mean yeah. not like Cole Porter. <laughs> yeah, and the, the title song is just a musical label tacked on at the beginning at the end. Classical music is briefly represented by a piano and string rendering of Mendelssohn's "On Wings of Song." Um, oh, area is. Yeah, um, and he. Yeah. Uh, uh, here's the, this, this is where he gets nasty <laughs> oh. or in the case of this, I think we're kind of in Bosley's corner. He's like, let's state the obvious shortcomings. Gordon Douglas, who directed this film has not kept it anywhere near as robust as Michael Kirkie's kept the original. He has let, let it become a little flabby and even wishy-washy in spots. And he has not got from Mr. Sinatra, the bite and sharpness that Mr. Garfield had. Ms. Day is sometimes too much bubble, too, much too bubbly. And of course, well, what is, I know, I know, but you can't tell Bosley that he won't listen. <laughs> One, he's dead, but two, he wouldn't have listened when he was alive. <laughs> And of course, what is worst of all, the hard luck character is allowed to recover from his attempted suicide. But even Mm -hmm. so, there's a lot of warmth and feeling in this elaborately optimistic film. And Mr. Sinatra does pull quills on the misfit before they blunt him to conformance in the end. Likewise, Miss Day is attractive when she casually bounces around, but she also becomes a soul saver and one girl society for the prevention of cruelty to strays. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I alluded to it earlier, but this was a really hard time in her life. Yeah. Made this film. She had come off Calamity Jane, which was a very strenuous film to do, even though she loved it. 
And Marty and Jack Warner wanted to, to, to put her right back into another one called Lucky Me, which was terrible. And she didn't want to do it. She didn't feel well. And during the movie, she got sick. Uh, yeah. Enough where she, I suspect, even though she hasn't said this, I think she probably had fibroid tumors and had a hysterectomy. But she was in really bad shape. Yeah. And she only had a couple of months really to recover before she went right into Young at Heart. So you have to wonder how she got all that bubbliness going. It, 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 I mean, it must be a factory somewhere that produced it for her. Because like, boy, I sure wouldn't have been able to do that. Yeah, even when you have the considerations that we've discussed for this film, what 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 astounds me is Doris's drive and knowing all of that, and then reading your stories about her in particular too. Just you know, like criticisms of these actors and their personalities of this time, I take with a grain of salt to a certain extent because this is what it was built. This is what the industry was built on. And in a lot of ways, this mentality is returning to Hollywood with people digging into one particular personality type and sticking to it. I think the the biggest example of that is superhero movies and who plays in superhero movies. Um, And I think that, Doris Day already had this image. This isn't like this isn't something out of the blue for Bosley to observe. So it's almost like he's treating this as just like this is just this is just another one of those things. Um, It's more fluff. Yeah, it's more fluff. Like he's not. I don't know what he's looking for. Like I, I mean, I do tend to look at films today when I get when I when I have to go review a film for real nerds and I see what it is. I walk in with the expectation of like, it's what it's, it's going to be, what it's going to be. And occasionally I get surprised, but more often than not, I'm aware of what I'm getting into. Like a Marvel movie. I love Marvel movies to death. I I'm, I'm just as big a fan of them as everybody else. But, but there is a sense when I walk out of the theater of just like, all right, I'm just waiting till the next episode, I guess. Like there's, 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 there's nothing convenient. There's nothing that nothing really surprised me. The one thing that I disagree on really with, with Crowther here on a, like on a, base level is that I think Sinatra's fine in this movie. I think he's great. I think he shouldn't have insisted on that ending necessarily if yeah, he wanted to yeah. be a little I, bit more robust, but he was Barney Sloan. Yeah. You believed it. Yeah. And it's almost like he saw that in himself and he's just like, I don't want my I don't want me to die. Like <laughs> Well you have to give Doris credit. You know, whatever she was in, and some of them were real stinkers, you believed her. You know, you look in those eyes and you could tell she believed what she was saying. Yeah. There was no artifice in her screen persona at all. Right. Absolutely. And I and I I don't feel dis I've never felt like Doris Day was disingenuous uh of a in terms of her as an icon or a concept. For a mm-hmm. long time it just wasn't my cup of tea. I'm sure. at I'm at an age now where I actually like watching this kind of stuff. Like it 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 it, it it's a good it's a good bubbly reminder of the, the, the light that can be brought into the world. Um, Mm. and I, and I do like, I do appreciate that when it's, when it hits me at the right moment. And I think young at heart hit me at the right moment for the most part, I had to put my critical eye on for the, for this, but if I was willing to take a chance by blind, blind buying this Blu-ray, I've made worse purchases. Like this is, and, but like, I mean, I do encourage the audience to seek the movie out and to frankly compare it to four daughters because you can watch two different directors with the same material, which is something Mm -hmm. that always happens because remakes are prevalent. But in particular, this is a musical remake and that carried on way up into today. 
Um, <laughs> obviously, one of the biggest smash successes on Broadway was a remake of The Producers, where Mel Brooks and Thomas Meehan adjusted the story and added songs. Mm-hmm. And Hairspray, which is one of my favorite musical adaptations to ever exist, is mm-hmm. uh, is based off of John Waters' quirky 1980s film with Divine. Like, it's yeah, that's right. the, two, the two materials are so different. And in a lot of ways, I could compare this to Hairspray from the sense that John Waters' Hairspray is very, very unafraid to be grimy. And mm-hmm. the new Hairspray, while, while great and wonderful, it is mm-hmm. very much towed in line to not uh-huh. offend the family audience. The closest it gets is having somebody in drag playing um, playing Edna um, uh-huh. Turnblad. Uh-huh. Beyond that, it's it's very much a squeaky clean kind of scenario and a more more than optimistic look at uh at uh, uh civil rights but <laughs> um and yeah. i i think it's just it it's the movie the, the the optimism is great but the the reality hasn't changed much but um i think that like but i will tell you that like to wrap it all up the ending of the marty doris saga is important to uh doris and your story in particular because there was money mismanagement. Oh, yes. Big time. Her life was completely disrupted. He died. Yeah. <clears throat> she thought she would have a life of peace. I mean, she wasn't fond of him at the end. Yeah. To find out that he had stolen from her. He had obligated her to an entire television series that went on for five years. He had obligated her to two television specials, none of which she knew about. He signed her name to those contracts and uh, then died. Jesus. I know. You know, I... I... <clears throat> When we talk about people controlling the destinies of actors um, within conservatorships, um, mm. which is not the same thing, but th- I feel like they thematically fall in together. The idea yeah. of controlling somebody else's creative destiny, it really yes. irks to, to read that and to really... Particularly when you think that she trusted him to do the right thing. Yeah. And this is, this is a power move. This is a male power move that I... Yeah. That like there's a there's a big lesson to take away from this and how people's destinies are guided by this malice centric tendency that I, you know, like I I'm I'm learning as I get older that there are multiple shades to these situations. But here Mm. but here is a good example of like, no, this is a flat out power move by a, 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 a male wishing to be dominant in the situation. Yeah, and, she had lots of warnings all along. Yeah. And she guarded them because of her upbringing and her personality and, yeah. and, and lack of wanting to take responsibility. So she was a, a co-conspirator in some ways. Yeah. It and, got and we, bigger than she ever thought. Yeah. And we can give, you know, Frankie shit for all the misgivings in his life, but he did try to warn her. Like, he... He was everybody here. Yeah. Everybody you work with. Uh, Gordon McRae tried to warn her, you believe that? <laughs> the very early 50s, right after she married Marty. Yeah. Gordon said, Yeah, I don't think so, Doris. Yeah. It's very, it's very frustrating. But Doris Day's legacy has was took on a life of its own at a certain point. She, oh, yeah. she lived up into 2019. Um That's- she had there were rumblings that uh, Mr. Eastwood was trying to get her uh, a role in the film Sully, um, but uh, that did not uh, 
Uh, well, she really couldn't work at that point. You know, she was offered the role of Mrs. Robinson in yeah. graduate and turned it down. She just didn't like anything that wasn't Doris Day, you know, from the 50s. She wanted to be happy and bubbly and sexy at a distance. I mean, that was her. A psychologist, which I once was, as you know, would call her a hysteric neurotic. Yeah. <laughs> she had a high degree of anxiety, a high degree of depression, and a lack of internal locus of control. I mean, I love Doris, but yeah. there were issues, shall we say. Yeah. And she put she put Hollywood behind her for the most part. Um, yeah. She called it. If I, if I was ever to find a positive story about Rex Reed, this is where it comes from. Uh, him and Liz Smith tried to get uh, Garner support for an honorary Academy Award to herald her film career. But this is what mm -hmm. I found amazing. She was offered an honorary Oscar multiple times, but kept declining it because she saw the film industry as part of her past life. No, she declined it because she would have had to fly. And oh. She got it on an airplane. Really? She, had, uh, she did do the Kennedy honors because of that. You know, she turned down honor after honor because she didn't want to leave what she was doing. God. Okay. Then that's it wasn't a political statement. It was a very personal one. Oh my gosh. Um, that's that, that changes what I looked into. That, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that's an interesting scenario. Also then yeah. I'm glad she didn't do Sully then. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that would have been something that would have been Clint just being a masochist oh. at that point. Maybe he oh, didn't. Yeah. Maybe he didn't know. Like I mean, no. I, I I give Clint Eastwood shit nowadays, but like you know, I don't think he's that much of a jerk. <laughs> like, um, now for himself of jerkness, I think. Oh yeah, no. There's plenty of well, Clint. Clint has plenty of skeletons in his closet. Um, yeah. but um, Pam, thank you again for coming to the Ballyhoo to talk about a, a figure from one of your book from your book. We w I want to have you back. Maybe we can do Barry more next time because that. Sure. That story is also interesting in the book, and it also we could get a chance to talk a bit about the Barrymore dynasty. It'll it'll motivate me to brush up on this material. Um, but legacy, yeah. And I I would love for you to let people know what you're working on now, or anything you want to promote, whether it's Fading Fame or anything else you got going on. Well, I hope people will read Fading Fame, women of a certain age in Hollywood. Um, I just finished writing a lengthy article on Gertrude Berg whom I've become enchanted with of late. She was an early radio and TV pioneer. Uh, the mm. first Emmy ever was won by Gertrude Berg. She beat out Betty White <laughs> for an Emmy. <laughs> and nobody knows who the fuck she was. And I think she should. So that's sort of my next, I'm trying to send it out to places, hoping it'll get published and people will talk about Gertrude Berg. Well, she would be known uh, to many old time radio fans um, for the Goldbergs. Um, yeah, 1929 which, was the first radio broadcast of the Goldbergs. Yeah, which is a um, which uh that that is a that is a show that I'm I don't I must confess I've never fully listened to, but I've always read about it. Like it's not it's not well, good for you to even know it. I'm impressed. Well, yeah, no, it just it comes from like reading like I think John Dunning's um Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio was a big godsend uh, as a kid. Uh -huh. Um and also uh several other scattered ones. They would always mention the Goldbergs. Like and it was uh -huh. and it was something there was this that there is this this area of it of providing a Jewish identity that wasn't or, wasn't being uh, done at the time. But that's right. She sort of kept people afloat in the depression. Yeah. Those shows because people always look forward to listening to them. They were highly rated and she was adored. She yeah. wasn't at all a person she portrayed, but I always find that fascinating in itself. 
Yeah. So I hope the people will look into her life. Well, wonderful. Maybe we can. Maybe what I can do is is uh, is break new ground and listen to some Goldbergs and have you on for a radio review of Gertrude Berg. Like, well, that... she's too great. You can do TV on uh, YouTube. Some of the early Goldbergs. Yeah, that's true. I can look into that as well. She's also on Ernie yeah. Ford, and oh my God, this is a this is a subject to dive into. I'm supposed to be focusing on Jack, but this, <laughs> he's just distracting so me. So many, really, it's just fascinating. Yeah, but thank. Always such a pleasure to talk to you, Zach. You're a joy. Oh, thank you, Pam. I I appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. And that's gonna wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back end of the show, on the next episode. Uh, we will be uh, talking about whatever happened to baby Jane with a Bella Bala returning. Um, and we are going to end the new, the end the old year with uh, a couple of uh, notes from a squeaky horn because Cheryl Jones uh, will be joining us for the horn blows at midnight. <laughs> um, but until all that, and until next time, folks, good night. Should survive to a hundred and five. Look at all you'll derive out of being alive. And here is the best part you have a head start if you are among the very young at heart. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Oh, my God.